This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to end our studies today in the book of Job as we get into Job chapter 42. Wayne Jackson, in his book, The Book of Job, on page 91, made this comment, and I quote, God has just been given, excuse me, Job has just been given a guided tour through a portion of God's zoo. Hopefully, he learned a few lessons along the way, unquote. You know, God has just asked Job a multitude of questions about the universe, the earth, the world of the dead, the animal kingdom, and Job had no answer. But he did learn a few things, just as we should have as well. Job's response is given at the beginning of chapter 42. Then God rebukes Job's three friends and instructs them what they need to do. After that, God restores Job's good fortunes after Job had done a marvelous thing. So let's get into our study here in chapter 42 of the book of Job. In verses 1 through 6, we see Job's response to God. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, Job's not complaining anymore about the way he's suffering. He's now focused on God. Job 42, 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. The American Standard Version renders verse 2 that no purpose of thine can be, can be restrained. Job has now learned to trust God, to love God, and to serve God, no matter what was happening to him. Job understands now that only God can do all things that are consistent with his nature. You know, the creation, the sustaining of his creation. And there are things, though, that we need to realize that God cannot do because these things are not consistent with God's nature. We look over in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, we find something that God cannot do. The verse says, In the hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So God cannot lie. It is not consistent with his nature. In 2 Timothy 2.13, we find something else that God cannot do. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So Christ Jesus, again, part of the Godhead, cannot deny himself. Even if we are unfaithful, he won't deny himself, even if we deny him. And then you look over in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13. 
Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. It says there, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? But again, we see here, God cannot look upon evil. So, there are some things that God cannot do because they're not consistent with his nature. Uh, these three, he cannot lie, cannot deny himself, cannot look upon evil. But God's power is unlimited, and his wisdom is infinite. God always does what is right, even though we may not understand why things are happening to us. Again, keep a marker there in Job 42. Let's go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Abraham here speaking to the Lord says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked be that far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And yes, the judge of all the earth will do right. And he did right here with Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Because he could not find ten righteous people in Sodom, so he destroyed them. God did what was right. And it is because of God's omnipotence, or he is all-powerful, that no thought or purpose of God can be restrained. Again, back in Job chapter 41, verse 2, the American Standard Version says, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be restrained. Well, back in Job chapter 42, Job then quotes a penetrating question that God had asked him earlier. Job 42.3 Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. God had said this to Job earlier in chapter 38 verses 1 and 2. Job 38, 1 and 2 then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? You see, Job now understands that he has no right to question God and that he was wrong in questioning God's actions in the world. He had no right to question God's actions. Job earlier thought, that his reasoning was clear, but now he understands he was actually confused about God's actions. Job now sees that the things God does in his operation of the universe, they're too difficult for human beings to understand. Whenever you look at the word, the phrase there, things too wonderful, where he said, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. That phrase, things too wonderful, comes from the Hebrew word 
pala, Brown Driver Briggs defines that word this way. To be marvelous, be wonderful, be surpassing, be extraordinary, separate by distinguishing action, to be difficult to understand. So Job is here admitting, I am the one who said those things without knowledge. Dave Miller in the Job class made this comment, and I quote, Job should have ex accepted his suffering with a submissive spirit. Trust God. Don't be filled with a sense of self-importance, unquote. Well, Job also quotes something else that God said earlier in Job 42.4. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. In Job 38.3, God said that to Job. Gird up thou thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Wayne Jackson made this comment on page 92 of his book, and I quote, In effect, he says, Lord, you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you how right you were. The sage of us is admitting the humbling effect of Jehovah's questions. He has been greatly educated as to the depth of his ignorance, unquote. Albert Barnes made this quote in his comment. This is the language of a humble, docile submission. On former occasions, he had spoken confidently and boldly of God. He had called in question the equity of his dealings with him. He had demanded that he might be permitted to carry his cause before him and argue it there himself. Now he is wholly changed. He is... His is the submissive language of a docile child, and he begs to be permitted to sit down before God and humbly inquire of him what was truth, unquote. Young's literal translation puts the verse this way, Job 42.4. Here I pray thee, and I, I do speak. I ask thee, cause thou me to know. You see the word demand there can mean a couple of different things. It is the Hebrew word sha'al and Strong's defined it as to inquire by implication to request by extension to demand. So we think about in Job 38 Job, God is demanding Job to answer here in Job 42.4, Job is requesting God to show him what is truth. And then Job understanding of God has been enhanced. Job 42.5 I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, Referring to the indistinct views which we have of anything by merely hearing of it compared with the clear apprehension which is furnished by sight. 
Job had such views as God of God as one may obtain by being told of him. He now had such views as are furnished by the sight. The meaning is that his views of God before were dark and obscure. We are not to suppose that Job means to say he actually saw God, but his apprehensions of him were clear and bright as if he did. There is no evidence that God appeared to Job in any visible form. He is said indeed to have spoken from the whirlwind, but no visible manifestation of Yahweh is mentioned." Unquote. So it would be kind of like somebody telling us about Angel Falls, or maybe even seeing a picture of Angel Falls. I've heard of it by the hearing of the ear. I've seen it in a picture. But will you really experience Angel Falls unless you really go there? Or some other, something else like that. Well, maybe the pyramids in Egypt or things, something like that. You really don't experience those things unless you see them in person. Job now sees God in person. He understands God more than he did. He came to a fuller understanding of who God really is and then of his own insignificance, Job 42, 6. He says, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job doesn't abhor or despise himself, but his words and his actions. Job understands that he does not need an explanation of why these things are happening to him. Job knows he should have kept his mouth shut and not accused God of injustice toward him. And notice that God did not say that Job's defense against the accusations of his friends was wrong. They were wrongly accusing him. But you know, Job had not sinned because if he had sinned, Satan would have won. Well, the word repent there, repent in dust and ashes, the Hebrew word nakam, Brown Driver Briggs defines this way, to be sorry, console oneself, repent, regret, comfort, be comforted. The literal translation here of Job 42.6 is this, therefore I despise myself and I have repented on dust and ashes. Wayne Jackson on page 92 of the book of Job made this comment, and I quote, We must remind ourselves that it is not repenting of false charges that were hurled against him by his accusers. He had not been guilty of those sins. He is repenting of his unjustified response to the misfortune that had befallen him. All of us need to remember that it is never right to lash out at God, unquote. So now Job is sufficiently humbled at the feet of God, as we should be as well. No matter what is happening to us in our lives, we cannot question God. 
God then rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're in Job 42, 7 through 9. In verse 7, God now turns his attention to those three friends of Job. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and thy two friends, against thy two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. You remember what Job said to his friends earlier? This would be in Job 13, verse 9. Job 13, 9. Job asked them, Is it good that he, God, should search you out? Or as one man mocketh another, do ye so mock him? Well, what Job mentioned there is about to happen. Notice, though, also that Elihu is not reprimanded by God, just Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. Well, in other words, it was time for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to take notice, pay attention. Job's three friends were speaking wrong things about God. They had charged Job falsely, and they had condemned Job. Wayne Jackson on page 93 of his book made this comment, and I quote, This seems to present a problem, for one recalls that Job's friends had spoken many true things about God, and as a matter of fact, the patriarch had accused his maker of injustice. First, there is the cause of suffering. The critical three had vigorously argued that suffering is always sent by God as a direct consequence of sin and in proportion thereto. Job denied such. In this matter, they were wrong and he was right. Second, their respective utterances had taken rise out of different circumstances. Job had cried out from heart-rending pain. They had coldly argued from theological bigotry. Third, Job had contritely confessed that his words were without knowledge. Yet up to this point, his friends had acknowledged nothing, unquote. So God tells Eliphaz, you did not say right things. So he tells Eliphaz and his friends what they must be do, what they must do to appease God's wrath against them. Chapter 42, verse 8. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. <clears throat> so there are four things here that God tells Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to do. 
<clears throat> number one, take seven bullocks and seven rams for a sacrifice. Number two, go to God's servant Job. Oh yeah, Job, the one that they had accused of great sins, the one that they had condemned, the one who God would accept. You have to go to him. Number three, have Job offer those animals as a sacrifice for them. You see, Job was to be their priest, and that is a great refutation of their false accusations. In other words, they're going to have to admit and show that they were wrong. People don't like to do that, do they? And then number four, they were to have Job pray for them because God would hear his prayer, not theirs. If they did these four things, then God says he would not deal with them as a consequence of their great foolishness. There are consequences to sin, absolutely. But God says if you will do these four things, you won't face those consequences that you will face if you don't do them. Well, in Job 42, 9, Job's three friends did as God commanded them to do. Job 42, 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. John Gill says concerning this verse, quote, This they did, both as to matter and manner, as the Lord ordered them. And they did it immediately, without consulting flesh and blood, the pride and other passions of their hearts. And they all united in it and served the Lord with one consent, which showed them to be good men, unquote. They were wrong in their accusations against Job. They were wrong in their thinking and everything like that. But when God told them what to do, they humbled themselves. They did not show foolish human pride. They didn't apparently even talk to each other about should we do this or not. They did it immediately. And that showed that they were good men. You, you, at the beginning of the book of Job, it mentions their in Job chapter 1, excuse me, in Job chapter 2, not Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, it says when Job, verse 11, when Job's three friends heard all this evil was come upon him, they came every one of them from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had come, or they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. They were good men, but they were wrong in their accusations. They were wrong in their thinkings about Job. They were wrong in their condemning Job. But whenever it came time for them to do what was right, they did it. They did not hesitate. God here then accepted the sacrifice and the prayer that was offered by Job on behalf of his three friends. 
and you'll notice here just think about that well we'll get into verse 10 we'll we'll get into what I'm thinking about here but notice that Job now was willing to pray and offer sacrifices for his three friends even though they had so mercilessly mercilessly accused him of great sins and condemned him for things that he had not done. You know, I mentioned earlier that there was a marvelous thing that God did, I mean that Job did. Yeah, this is it. He prayed for those friends. He offered sacrifices for those friends, though they had so bitterly and so condemningly accused him of such great sin. So Job was willing to forgive and to forget what his friends had done to him and what they had said about him. Wayne Jackson said this, and I quote this page 94, quote, He who has recently received the Lord's pardon is happily interested in the same for others, unquote. So, because of that, Job did what God told him to do. Job's three friends did what God told them to do as well. And in verses 10 through 17, God restores Job's life. First of all, there is the condition for Job's physical restoration. This is Job 42.10. It says, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. You see, God restored Job's health and prosperity when he prayed for his three friends. Job could have had the attitude that so many people would have today. I'm not going to pray for them. You see how they treated me. You see what they said about me. You see what was done by them to me. I'm not going to do that. No, Job didn't have that attitude. Job had the attitude of God has forgiven me. I understand now. You know, it's not, I'm not maybe, you know, God had, I said God has forgiven me. Job didn't do anything to be forgiven of in what they were accusing him of. But Job has understood he had no right to question God, and God has forgiven him of that. And he's there going, I'm going to pray for my friends because I love them, and I love God. Adam Clark made this comment concerning verse 10, and I quote, He had suffered much through the unkindness of these friends. They had criticized his conduct without feeling or mercy. And he had just cause to be irritated against them. And that he had such a feeling toward them, several parts of his discourses sufficiently prove. God was now about to show Job his mercy. But mercy can be shown only to the merciful. Job must forgive his unfeeling friends if he would be forgiven by the Lord. He directs him, therefore, to pray for them, unquote. What a wonderful thing. 
Job was willing to pray for those who had so unjustly criticized him. And then what Jesus said to do there whenever he gave the model prayer, forgive us of our sins as we have forgiven those, forgive us our debtors as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's the kind of an attitude that Job had there. Now it mentions there in Job 42.10 that God turned the captivity of God, of Job. Captivity from the Hebrew word shabuth. Strong says that word means exile, concretely prisoners, figuratively a former state of prosperity. So God healed Job from his disease and God gave Job twice as much as he had before. But you think about it, he wouldn't have done it immediately because it would have been done gradually because he had 10 more children. And that's going to take a while, is it not? Well, in Job 42.11, all of Job's kinsmen and friends that had forsaken him in his time of need now returned to him. Job 42.11 Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every man an earring of gold. So you think about what just happened here. Albert Barnes made this comment, and I'll comment, quote him first. It seems remarkable that none of these friends came near to him during his afflictions, and especially that his sister should not have been with him to sympathize with him. But it was one of the bitter sources of his affliction and one of the grounds of his complaint that in his trials his kindred stood aloof from him, unquote. You go back to Job 19, verses 13 and 14. Job 19, 13 and 14. Job says of God, He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. So it wasn't just Job's three friends there, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that had rejected him. His kinfolk had rejected him. His friend, other friends had rejected him. As we read earlier, his servants rejected him. Young children rejected him. I mean, everybody had rejected Job. But now, they've all come back. They all ate bread with Job in his house. That's a token of friendship and affection. Now they comforted Job for all that had happened to him. And you'll notice they're still blaming God. His friends are. <clears throat> because you look at it, you comfort him over all the evil that the Lord had done to him. Well, the word evil there means, this is Brown Driver Briggs' second definition, evil, distress, misery, injury, calamity. All of those things, all this calamity, well, God did allow that, but God didn't cause it. It was the devil that caused it. 
God had allowed Satan to bring all this misery on Job, and Job and his companions still apparently didn't know this, and they, his friends apparently still blame God on that. And unless Job is the writer of the book, he may not have found out why all these things, all these things happened to him. He might have found out after he died. I don't know. But regardless, Job was not going to question God anymore. And then it noticed that each person brought Job a piece of money and a golden earring. And these gifts were commonly given to someone who had been restored from a great disaster. Well, and then it mentions that God gave Job twice as much as he had before. There in verse 12, it says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 sheep donkeys. We go back to Job chapter 1, verse 3. Job 1.3, it says his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-donkeys in a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And now God has given Job twice as much. So God now blessed Job more than he had before. Job also had 10 more children. Job 42:13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. That takes us back to Job chapter 1 verse 2. It says there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Wouldn't be the same ones. These would be different. The question has arisen, well, was this Job's wife or did he have another wife? The answer there is not known. But it could have been of the same woman that told him to curse God and die. He still loved her. They may have had 10 more children there. And it's interesting to note that of Job's 20 children, that only the last three daughters are given by name. Job 42, 14. And he called the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. Only these three. Well, I want to give you the meaning of the names. Uh, Jemima, according to Hitchcock Bible names, means handsome as the day. Keziah, or cassia, a sweet-smelling spice. And then Karen Hapak, horn of cosmetic, and that's Strong's definition there. It says it was used as eye paint to beautify the eyes. John, John Gill quotes from the Targum, which was the Jewish Aramaic translation of the books of the Hebrew Bible. And he states this, and I quote, He called the one Jemima because her beauty was as the day. The other he called Keziah because she was precious like Cassia. And another he called Karen Hapak, because great was the brightness of the glory of her countenance as the emerald. 
So the meanings of their names shows the beauty and the sweetness of Job's girls. Job's daughters were more fair than any others, and they received an inheritance, Job 42.15. In all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Job's family, a picture of a family that was in harmony with each other and with God. The girls received an inheritance just as much as the boys did. That shows Job's impartiality toward his children. Partiality in a family will destroy a family. You think about Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob, and you see what problems that caused. Those problems weren't in Job's family. They were in harmony. And then Job lived a good long life, Job 42, 16. After this lived Job a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. Four generations. So Job's lifetime could have been over 200 years, which was common right after the flood of Noah's day. Now you go back to Genesis chapter 5, and you see prior to the flood, the extensive lifetimes of the individuals. Genesis chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And you go all the way down through there. You go to Methuselah, verse 27, 969 years, and he died. And it mentions Lamech there. Verse 28, he lived 182 years, begat a son, he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Lamech lived after he begat Noah 595 years and begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. And then Noah was 500 years old when he began to build the ark there, we find there in verse 32. But you go over to chapter 11 after the flood, and we see in chapter 11, verse 32, Terah, speaking there, uh, Terah, Abram's father there, it says the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, Abraham's father, Terah, lived to be over 200 years old. And apparently here, Job probably lived to be over 200 years old. And that's one of the reasons that is believed that Job lived there during the time of Abraham. Well, Job got to see his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, maybe his great-great-grandchildren, whether he's considering himself as one generation or the fourth generation down. And he died in a good old age, Job 42, 17. 
So Job died, being old and full of days. Adam Clark made this comment, and I quote, He had seen life in all its varieties. He had risen higher than all the men of the East and sunk lower in affliction, poverty, and distress than any other human being that existed before or has lived since. He died when he was satisfied with his life. This word, Hebrew word Seba, and that's translated full, implies. He knew the worst and the best of human life, and in himself the whole history of providence was exemplified and illustrated, and many of its mysteries unfolded." Unquote. Flavel, Nick, Flavel H. Nichols in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectures on page 407 made this comment, and I quote, The last days of a righteous man sometimes are the best and happiest days of his life. Why should it not be so? There has never been a more glorious sunset in the Golden West than the close of a faithful life spent dedicated loyalty or spent in dedicated loyalty to God, unquote. Johnny Ramsey in his book, Cover to Cover, on pages 72 and 73, made this comment, and I quote him, there are five basic lessons we can draw out of the brilliant and dramatic book of Job. One, children of God are surrounded by heaven's love. Two, Satan is relentless. Three, human philosophy falls short. Four, too much trust can be placed in family and friends. Five, if God made the world, surely he can guide our lives, unquote. You think about those five lessons as we draw the book of Job here to a conclusion, our study here. Children of God are surrounded by heaven's love. We are greatly blessed. No matter what may be happening to us in this world, we are greatly blessed by God. God sent his son to be a savior of the world. God gave us his word so that we can know his plan for our salvation. We can have the hope of eternal life. We can have the forgiveness of our sins. So many, so much love is shown to us by our Father in heaven. And Satan is relentless. Satan never gives up. First Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Job was trying to be devoured by Satan, and Satan did everything he could to Job to get him to turn his back on God. And we are no different. Satan is going to do everything he can to us to try to get us to turn our back on God, to be disobedient to God, to blame God for things that are happening in our lives, to curse God to his face. That's what Satan wanted Job to do, and he did everything he could to accomplish that. 
but he failed. And because of our Lord Jesus Christ, Satan will fail in our lives as well if we continue to be faithful to God unto death. And Revelation 2 says, 2.10, Be faithful unto death, I'll give thee the crown of life. Human philosophy falls short in so many ways. Human philosophy, the wisdom of this world, you think about. The wisdom of this world is fleeting. The wisdom of this world is generally wrong as we look at God's wisdom. Oh, you know, human philosophy, where we're looking here at, well, God punishes the sinner according to his sin, and he'll do it now, and he'll do it in, you know, the same amount that he has sinned. Human philosophy falls short in so many different ways. You think about those, well, Dr. Spock who came out and, oh, if you punish your children and you whip them or spank them or whatever, oh, you're, you're causing them great harm. But God, who is the creator of the human mind, knew better than that. You think about over in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Withhold not correction from the child. If thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. The word beat there means to strike. The word rod there means a branch. You know, people take things so out of context. The child is, he will not die if you administer proper chastisement. Don't do it in anger. Do it calmly, allowing or informing the child what you're do why you're doing that. Children need to know. You know, verse 6 of Proverbs 22 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. You know, God who created the human mind shows how woefully human philosophy falls short. And then going back to Brother Ramsey's fourth point, too much trust can be placed in family and friends. You know, whenever Job was wealthy and everything's were going well, everybody was happy, his friends were all there. Whenever things started happening to Job, though, and all this calamity came upon him, what happened to his friends? Well, we know the three, they came, they accused Job, they, I mean, they were critical of him and everything else, and all of his other friends left him. But you know, God is still there. God was still there for Job, even though everyone else had left him. And then the fifth point, if God made the world, surely he can guide our lives. Absolutely. You look at everything in God's creation, things we don't understand. So many different things we don't understand. We don't know the size of the universe. We can estimate it. It is so awesome, I guess you would have to say. God is an awesome being who created an awesome universe. And he can guide our lives, and he guides our lives through his word. We need to come to the same understanding that Job did. No matter what is happening to us in our lives, 
God is always there. God always does that which is right. We have no reason to question God. We have no reason at all to try to say God is not doing right because God always does right. I want to thank you for tuning in today to be with us. I hope the study on Job has been enlightening and encouraging as it has been to me. And whenever we look at this life, so many things happen to us. The death of friends and loved ones, the loss of a job or ill health or things such as that. But we know that one of these days, everything's going to turn out right there for the child of God. And you go over to Revelation chapter, let's see, oh, and I love it whenever my mind goes totally blank on these things. Revelation 22, 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Thank you for tuning in with us today. We look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Way Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.